Simon Deakin, Director of the Centre for Business Research. Simon, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series today on your two-day Labour Standards workshop. Tell me a little bit about the, the papers that were discussed on the first day. Well, I was involved in two papers discussed in the first session. One of them is an account of how we constructed a new data set of labour laws around the world. And the second of the two papers that I co-authored is a paper using econometric analysis to explore the data set and to analyse the question of what the impact of labour laws on employment, productivity and inequality, what that impact actually is. Well, let's start with the first paper, Advances in Quantitative Labour Law Research Laws. What's the significance of this? It's a very ambitious project. Well, the data set covers over 100 countries for the period between 1970 and 2013 and involves the application of a pretty novel data coding method. The end result is a data set which provides a continuous time series of historical data on the evolution of labour laws over time, how they become more protective in some countries over time, less protective in others, and we're looking particularly at laws relating to the individual employment contract, dismissal laws are part of that, and collective labour laws, laws including laws about the right to strike and also the right to collective bargaining. Now you take those laws together, they help to constitute and regulate the world of work and the labour market. They have important implications for worker management relationships and also for equality within society. We know that some countries have weak labour laws, like the USA. Some countries have stronger labour laws, perhaps within Europe, Germany and the UK included in that. But you didn't set out to produce a best or better. No. The aim of this project is to get better data. Other data sets exist and some of them have been developed over many years by international bodies like the OECD and the World Bank. Those data sets only address part of the picture that we wanted to address and don't provide in every case a continuous historical time series. We wanted to begin from scratch to start over this process of coding labour laws using a somewhat different and we felt more justifiable approach than had been used in the past. We also felt that we could explore by these means, a number of economic questions which until now had not really received a full or complete answer. For example, the OECD dataset, although very widely used, only talks about employment protection and not other areas of labour law that we were coding. The World Bank datasets, very influential in the 2000s, based upon the work of some economists at Harvard, the so-called Laporta LLSV studies, The original World Bank datasets only covered one year, and even in their more recent form, they do not provide the decades-long time series that we do. Clearly, there is no ranking from first to last, but there are a lot of countries involved over a long time. How significant does that make the research as a database? We really try to avoid ranking countries. Now, of course, you, you could take the data and rank them, so you could say... The the most protective country is such and such country. Maybe for some people that would be the most rigid. We don't take that view. We take the view that if you just look at the content of the laws, before you do any econometric analysis, you don't really know what the impact of the law is. It could be good, it could be bad. So knowing about the laws is critical to answering the question, what is their effect? But the legal data do not tell you anything at all about whether a country's laws are good or bad. They are just part of a wider process of using statistical analysis to get at the effects of the laws. So that's why we really shouldn't use our data set to rank the countries as such. And you might have countries with strong laws, but poor implementation. There's also a big risk. Okay, so the United States really does actually have rather weak worker protective labour laws. Both collective labour law and individual labour law in the US are really are weak by comparison even to the UK, certainly by comparison to France. On the other hand, the US, where it does have laws, probably will enforce them quite well, quite effectively. Then there may be countries like China, which have on paper since the mid-2000s, or in particular since 2008, quite strong labour laws, refuting many of the expectations people have of China, in fact. And there's a big debate in China about how well those laws are enforced. Now, I don't think it's fair to say that in China the laws are enforced in the same way as they are in Germany or the United States or the UK. But we know from other research, including research we ourselves have done, field work, interview work, that these laws often are effective in particular types of companies and in particular regions. So one should take our data sets and use it alongside other evidence 
on the way laws work in practice. It's only part of a big jigsaw puzzle. And how controversial, if I might use that word, is this type of data set in terms of the leximetric coding of labour laws? People might like to deconstruct it and say, well, you really can't draw conclusions from this. Albert Einstein is said to have said, but maybe didn't say, but it's a great saying anyway, that not everything that counts can be counted, and not everything that can be counted counts. Now, maybe we're trying to count something that's uncountable, or maybe this shouldn't really be done. I don't think so, though. I, I think over time, social science has advanced, and things that weren't measured or measurable at all became measurable through statistical techniques. And this process begins historically very much in the 19th century, begins in the Crimean War, begins in domestic policy inside the UK. Policymakers began to measure public health outcomes, began to measure mortality rates. They went on to measure other things. They measure well-being. They measure poverty. We measure the way the legal system works. It is not easy to do this, and you have to delve into the methodological and theoretical issues in detail and set out your stall. So it's not an automatic process. Now, our, our feeling is, in the past, sometimes these metrics were constructed, no doubt very carefully, but without an eye to the external audience being a bit sceptical on how this was done. Our answer to this is to be as clear as possible about our theoretical assumptions, which are minimal, by the way. We don't assume that laws are good or bad, but we do assume laws can have an impact. Okay, N not, I think, a very contentious assumption. But we then very clearly set out coding methodology, and we have produced a code book, which is over 800 pages long, where you can see how every single value in the data set was derived, and the primary law upon which each data point is based is reported in the code book. We're the first people to do this. It's not, in some ways, exactly rocket science. It's just what you would expect. Why should people treat seriously data of this sort if they can't see how the data set was constructed? Well, we have attempted to set out as clearly as we could do, and as clearly as anybody has previously done, how this sort of data set should be and has been, in this case, constructed. Louise Bishop. Professor Bastani. Thank you very much indeed for talking to the CBR podcast on the Labour Law Conference. You were co-authors of Simon Deacon's paper, the CBR LRI dataset, methods, properties and potential of leximetric coding of labour laws. Can you tell me a little bit first, Louise, on how you were involved in the research? What I did was essentially look at the labour legislation and textbooks and basically the materials that explain what the laws of that country were. And then I was involved in making kind of judgments on what the laws were in terms of what value they should be given. And, and then explaining, just doing little notes on the side to, to make it as transparent as possible to just say the score that's been given and why it's been given and if there's any kind of relevant or semi-relevant information as well. And so your involvement in the paper. My involvement is really to do with understanding the quantitative trends in the data and what sort of analysis can come out of certain structure in the data. And so it's really looking at the quantitative side of things. Once the data has been coded, what can be done with it? Louise, you set out to produce what is the first cross-country look at the effect of labour law regulation on the labour market. Do you want to have a stab at explaining your findings? It's very difficult to say in a nutshell what this kind of basic findings of 100 countries are. I think over a time period, one of the things that was immediately obvious was just kind of the increase in labour law and the kind of more detailed thing. And this was something that was kind of consistent across the board. And it was also quite interesting to see in different areas where there were kind of trends. So Latin America had kind of very detailed labour laws from quite early on, whereas Scandinavian countries, which traditionally you kind of would think that they have very good kind of protective labour law, they didn't have actually that much labour law, there was very little detail in the legislation itself, but there was a lot of collective bargaining agreements, which so we had to kind of look at other sorts of law as well. So from a purely kind of legislative look, there were some countries that seemed kind of very sparse on legislation. And it isn't just about the legislation, because we know, for instance, Germany might be strong on legislation, and even the UK. It's about enforcement and the ability of workers to take actions and who's going to fund the actions. So it's not as simple as just looking at the laws. No, definitely not. I, that was something that was difficult. We had to sort of shelve for the time being and knowing that the, the actual enforcement is going to be quite different from country to country. So we looked at other indexes to use in combination with just the pure kind of looking at what the law said, the kind of temper, the, the effect of the laws and how kind of comprehensive they were. 
can you say one country is good and one country is bad? Is that how you set out to do the study to say, look, we know this country has strong laws and this one has weak laws. But on the other hand, you can enforce the laws in the weaker country and you can't in the, the stronger country. It's very complex, isn't it, to come up with a conclusion. Yeah, I think actually we make it explicit. We don't want to compare countries as such to say one is stronger than the other because there are different areas of the law. They have very different impacts in different contexts. So we make it very clear that we don't want and the data should not be used for ranking countries, for instance, to say one country is stronger or weaker because that all depends on stronger in what sense, what are the goals, what are the objectives. So until that is all clarified, you really cannot rank countries in any case. What you can do with the, the data that we have is to look at the heterogeneity within the countries, to changes over time, to also compare countries with one another. For instance, to look at if you compare U.S. and U.K. law, you can see that U.S. pretty much has no laws versus U.K. comes stronger than U.S. But then if you compare it to other countries like Germany, then U.K. is not strong at all. So you, you get a sense of the relative position within each other uh, and you can comment on heterogeneity, but you never want to rank countries because that's just not robust. Louise, do you agree that if you look at your leximetrics rankings or, or your data from the leximetrics study, that the important thing is knowing that there are different rules pertaining in different countries, regardless of who's best or what the outcomes are, that countries can learn from one another? Definitely. I'm a big advocate of comparative law and kind of looking and learning from other countries and what's worked in some countries and what hasn't. But it's also quite interesting to see that some things work really well in certain countries and other things don't transfer quite so well in other countries. So on the one hand, it is kind of good to look and learn and, and share ideas and that sort of thing. But at the same time, you're never going to get a one size fits all for kind of every country. There is a prevailing orthodoxy, perhaps amongst business, that the more regulation there is, the worse it is for their profitability. Have you got anything to say on that? Because there have been other studies being conducted in conjunction with your lexometrics one by other researchers? It's a difficult one. I, I think that there's always a concern that, you know, if workers are, uh, say, for example, harder to dismiss, then that's more costly for the company. But I think that profitability is such a crude thing and it, it manifests in so many different ways. So you may find that workers actually, if they know they've got better job security, they might be more productive, spending less time worrying about their, you know, performance and actually having that freedom to just do well and not stress about that sort of thing. So there's always going to be you know, different sides of the argument and different perspectives. And I think when you have legislation that does restrict, say, what employers can do, that's going to make them nervous because no one likes to have strengths on them. And, and these are always going to, I suppose, if you can attack these with, say, profitability arguments, that's what you're going to do. But And so do you think perhaps the importance of the lexometric data and, and the fact it goes across so many countries and so many years is that one can look, if you're an economist, at things like productivity. One, one can use the data in different ways. Yes, one can use the data in different ways. It also sort of adds a dimension. So normally in economics data sets, you have data on productivity, GDP, quality and so on, but less focus on legal indices. And so this is the first really legal data set that has been created in such detail and with such transparency. So it's just something that it was non-existent. And now we've made it available to all researchers so they can do more robust analysis and really take a look at what laws look like in a quantitative framework. And does it matter perhaps if people think, well, we can challenge these findings? The fact the data set is now there is very important. It's really the first step because unless you have data set that is transparent, then you can not have a discussion that, that is useful. So, uh, which is why we, we have put a lot of effort into creating a data set that is detailed, that is comprehensive, and that is transparent. Because transparency means you can have discussions, you can dispute, you can correct. But if there is no transparency, no, no one can challenge it. It cannot move forward. So this is really the first step, I think, to move forward. And there was just finally transparency about the lexometric data being the important thing. Yeah, well, so we've, let's say, tried to make as transparent as possible. We've got, I think Simon mentioned, 800-word document on giving the code, but explaining that code so that people can see how we've arrived to that value. And so if people have issue with that, they can see it, they can challenge it. And we, we really have spent a lot of time trying to make it as transparent and open and, and useful in that way as possible. Simon... How do you foresee the data being used? It is on your website. 
People can look at it, they can scrutinise it, they can criticise it, but they can also take it forward. We have committed ourselves, as has the, the university and many other universities in the UK and overseas, to the principle of open access data. So we worked closely with the open access team at the University Library in Cambridge to make these data sets available online on the university's data repository as soon as they were ready. Now, when we were preparing them, many people wrote to us to say, we'd like to use your data because we published a couple of papers based upon a partial data set. We know there's a lot of interest in these data sets. The data sets are online. People can use them and can really do what they want with them. Now, there are many issues about how to use the data sets, and there may be some disagreement about what weights to attach to particular data. That's a technical issue. Weighting of indicators. You can combine the indicators in different ways. This is now in the public domain, and people can do what they want with it. We would say that if you want to engage in a debate with us, we're very happy to advise on features of the data set, but we've also written a very long paper. This is the one we presented today. That will also go online, explaining how the data set was constructed. The codebook also has a lengthy explanation. But if anybody would like to discuss with us how the data set might be used by them, then we'd be very happy to have that discussion. So what happens now is, hopefully, people will use the data. We will also use it, but other people will use it. It's critical that the wider social science community and international agencies and governments begin to use these data. That's why they were created. Simon, if we move on to the second paper, tell us a little bit about that. This paper is essentially looking at the impact of labour laws. A paper I wrote with my colleague Prabhajit Sarkar, does labour regulation improve income distribution? That is, does it make it more equal? Nevertheless, if it does that, is there a trade-off? Decreased employment and lower productivity? That's a huge question in the social sciences. So we use a new data set to answer that question. Prabhajit conducted time series regression analysis using a particular type of economic model, a regression model, called a pooled mean group estimator model. And this regression model tries to estimate both short-term and long-term effects of an external change, such as a legal change, which impacts on the economy. It impacts upon employment relationships. It alters costs for firms, maybe negatively. Firms have costs that wouldn't otherwise bear. Maybe positive undercutting is ruled out. Firms can observe labour standards more reliably and credibly if there's legal support for them. There may be a reduction in transaction costs, a reduction in opportunism once laws are enacted. All these effects need to be studied empirically. That was the purpose of the paper. Your findings from that paper, they were positive. They're positive for one view of labour law. What the paper does is look at 36 rich countries, OECD countries, developed countries, for which we have long runs of data going back to the 1990s on what we would call here the outcome variables. How does the law affect the economy in terms of productivity, employment and unemployment? We combine those data with our own data set, which has a longer time series, but actually our data go back further than many other data sets do. We're limited in what we can do at the moment, but we try not to do an analysis with missing data. So we've got continuous time series. We find that there's generally a certain type of relationship in this 36 country sample, that labour laws, when they become more worker protective, on average have the effect of increasing the so-called labour share, that is to say the share of national production going into wages as opposed to profits. That's somewhat of a simplification, but the basic idea is worker protective labour laws increase labour's share of national output, and to that extent one may say that this results in a more equal or even distribution. But, of course, there may be people who say maybe shareholders aren't getting enough, so, OK, depends how you interpret the result. We also found evidence that these laws generally do, especially dismissal laws, increase productivity. That's a way of saying that these dismissal laws induce firms to use labour more efficiently, basically. The general consensus is that if you put more regulation and you give workers more rights... Mm. It's more expensive for the mm. employer, so therefore it costs business, and it's not good for business. It leads to a lack of growth, mm. a lack of productivity. Your findings were the reverse of that. There are lots of ways in which labour laws are needed. Even the World Bank, which have been critical of labour laws, saying they harm workers when they're meant to help them by 2015, had changed its mind and said that actually labour regulations were quote, unquestionably necessary, unquote, not just to promote fairness, fair, fair outcomes, which they do do on the whole, but also to make contracting more efficient. And what, what they meant by that was that the labour contract, the employment contract, is uncertain, it's open-ended, it's not self-enforcing. It does create the possibility of, of opportunism and exploitation, and that leads to a breakdown in trust, a breakdown in cooperation between the two sides, both individually and collectively. Now, labour law norms 
these are fairness norms inserted into the employment contract or into collective labour relationships. They give workers voice at work. They provide a floor of rights below which wages and terms won't go. They regulate competition across a sector. They provide for a consumption-led model for the economy, not just an investment-led model. They provide a basis for firms to sell their own products to their own workers and other people. Okay. So labour laws have all these potentially very positive effects. Yes, they may have negative effects. So nothing is clear-cut. Labour laws may lead to a distortion of market outcomes. They could conceivably create a two-tier labour market with employers having incentives to employ people in casual work forms or informal work forms to avoid regulation. All these things are possible. We need to study them. What we found was that for this sample of developed, advanced, so-called rich countries, on the whole, which have tough labour laws, these are countries which have stricter labour laws than most developing countries, also have more equality, actually, have less inequality, and also tend to be more productive, tend to be more efficient. And I think the basic message is that for this sample of countries, over many, many decades, and we just looked at the most recent ones, labour laws have been compatible with an increase in the efficiency of the economy, an increase in well-being, and actually more equal outcomes over time. Now, that's not always the message you hear, but I it's think... It's not a fashionable message. Well, it hasn't been a fashionable message for some time, but actually, if you look closely at what the OECD has recently said, and the World Bank has recently said, they have qualified the message of the 1990s, which was labour laws harm workers. They take a much more nuanced view. Now, in some ways, therefore, uh, so, and so does the academy, so does academic research, it's much more nuanced on this issue than it was 30 or even 20 years ago. So national governments, to some degree, are behind the curve. Perhaps this country needs experts occasionally. Here's one area where not just the experts, but the international agencies are increasingly taking a more nuanced view than some governments are taking. Prabhujit Sarkar, Professor of Economics, Jadavpur University, Calcutta. Impact of labor regulations on employment and income distribution. Already there is a neoliberal view that labor market should be more flexible, there should be labor market deregulations. We actually could not believe that this kind of uh, outcome is possible. So then once we got the data, then we try to examine that whether this neoliberal view is correct or not. Because there is a, another kind of view, they are also telling something different. So what is the truth? So that actually prompted our uh, study. You had information already available to you, 117 countries between 1970 to 2013, and you actually took a sample of 36 from 1995 to 2012. Why did you study this particular sample? Because of the lack of data, because uh, all the economic indicators this data you don't get for all the countries, particularly chronologically, uh, without any break, you can't get data like that. So that's why we have to choose a sample for which we have all the data. Even the shorter time period, because even for this country, the 36 countries, this kind of data over a long span for which we have leximated data, that are not there. The prevailing wisdom is often that the more labour regulation you have, then it will impact adversely on employees because people won't want to take them on and it will add costs to the employer for the economy. But you found exactly the opposite. You concluded that on the whole, labour regulation has a favourable effect. In our regression, we actually made a proper kind of analysis because labor regulations or any regulation cannot have an instantaneous instant effect. It has a short-run effect or may not be any short-run effect, but then over time with some different kinds of adjustment, finally we can have a long-term fundamental relationship between the two. And we did an econometric tool where actually this kind of analysis is captured. So there uh, we got this kind of result. But Usually most of the studies that are actually saying something different, they don't take into account this kind of thing. And also sometimes they don't have chronologically arranged proper data. So they just have a sketchy of data, some uh, periods are missing and all this. And also we took a proper control 
because sometimes it happens that you see that different countries may have different cyclical fluctuations. We should have a proper control for that. We used GDP growth because uh, you see that I think that employment depends more on GDP growth rather than labor regulation. In terms of the findings of your study, does labor regulation hurt labor by reducing employment opportunities? We didn't find any evidence in favor of that, uh, the viewpoint that labor regulation hurts labor. Because we have three models, and in the three models, either we get no result or we get a result favorable to the labor regulations. So in that way, it goes against a conventional standpoint. There are two standpoints, actually. One is neoliberal standpoint, and another is a little bit socialist type of standpoint. And neoliberal standpoint, actually, they are challenging the socialist standpoint. But we got some more support in favor of socialist standpoint. Because you see that when labor regulations are there, that actually make labor more productive, and maybe they have more commitment. And also, even in neoclassical theory, they have some one kind of theory that is called efficiency wage hypothesis. So they don't actually uh, take into account that when they are making a neoliberal standpoint. You will be more efficient if you have, get better wage. And even if you take my case, that if I have a hire and fire in my university, I, I would never do research. Because you see that I am always sword is hanging on my head that any day I will be fired, so I will be not do research, anything, getting some, always I will try to write a paper very quickly without proper thinking because always there is something hanging on my head. So even for personal experience also I think that, that if there is a proper job security that actually improves productivity. Your conclusion that there's no strong evidence that labour regulation hurts labour by reducing employment opportunities, you add especially for youth. Actually, even for youth also, uh, it does not matter much. Actually, uh, you see that when the economy is flourishing, then it matters little for the employer whether the labor regulations are too strict or not. And when the economy is not flourishing at all, even in that case, you see that whatever hire and fire you introduce, nobody will employ you because they don't have any uh, market for their product. So you see that when there is a flourishing economy, companies will not bother whether there is a strict labor regulation because they will always make a profit. If they give you a proper environment of work and uh, all kinds of strict regulation, they don't matter. But when there is a economic depression, then if the workers say we'll cut our wages to half, one third, even they will not employ until unless you work free. So this is the problem actually. So in any way you see that labor regulations is actually good for labor efficiency and all these things. And employment has nothing to do with the labor regulation in that sense. Simon, this is really an important and influential piece of research. Does labor regulation improve income distribution at the cost of decreased employment and productivity? Governments need to take note of it. Whether it turns out to be influential remains to be seen, but I, I think the data set will be used by lots of people for their own purposes. And our research, some papers have already been published, some have been disseminated, is, I think, inviting those who argue for deregulation to reaffirm their case on the basis of evidence and not just on the basis of theory. What we're seeing is a complex empirical picture. The evidence can be used to dig more deeply into these issues and people have hitherto been able to do. So this is not to prejudice a debate which will continue forever. The debate about how labour regulation works is not a new one and this paper and papers like it won't conclude it. But we think that this line of work potentially offers a new angle on some very old questions and should be taken seriously by policymakers as well as by academics, yes. Simon, let's go on to the two other papers that were discussed, Corporate Social Responsibility, Regulation and Governance, Bridging Private, Public and Advanced Rising Powers, CHASM. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, this was a paper presented by Bimal Aurora from Manchester, which he co-wrote with Khalid Nadvi and, and Rudolf Sinkovics. Uh, it's a very, very interesting presentation, which was focusing upon the Indian case and the idea that in India, the state was actively encouraging companies to engage in corporate social responsibility initiatives. And I think what came out of this was that the use of so-called CSR, corporate social responsibility, in this sense is quite double-edged. The state is saying to companies, you must devote 2% of your turnover to CSR-type issues. And you should be providing, for example, local infrastructure in both cities and rural areas to fill a gap that the state so far has not been able to meet. Now, that begs the question, why doesn't the state do it through taxation? Why is private initiative 
initiative, if it is better than public initiative, why is that so? So I think this is a fascinating paper, which, which shows that CSR, on the one hand, could mean companies proactively contributing to the provision of public goods. But then that begs the question, we already have a system of public finance, we have a system of taxation, we have an agency called the state which delivers public goods. Why are companies doing it? Now, this is not to say that there are, again, clear answers. It could be that the state needs companies to work with it, not against it, and there are limits to what the state can achieve. But I thought it was a fascinating paper because it throws new light on CSR in an emerging market, a newly industrialising country like India, and that is absolutely fascinating. The second paper, Chinese CSR Standards, Policy Goals on Social Upgrading and Industrial Policy Goals in GPNs. paper by Corinna Brown-Munzinger was about CSR in China. And what was interesting about this in particular was that China's taking a very different approach to CSR from India. So in China, CSR, rather like labour regulation, is part of industrial strategy, has become part of a strategy for upgrading industry, moving from a low-cost base to a somewhat different approach based upon industrial upgrading where technological innovation is being encouraged and firms are, are no longer to be reliant solely upon cheap labour. That's the model. So this was very interesting. It's a completely different perspective from the one being offered in, in the Indian case. The state isn't expecting CSR to substitute for the public sphere for, or for the taxation system. The state continues to deliver public goods, but this time it's part of a state policy of requiring firms to upgrade their own structure. It's very interventionist, actually, and fascinating that China does not see a low-wage, low-cost option as sustainable for much longer, if indeed it ever was for them, that the period during which they were effectively operating a non-regulated labour market may have been only about 15 or 20 years. Now they've moved decisively away from that. And if we're talking about India and China, key members of the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, both have positive moves in terms of corporate social responsibility. Was that influenced by internationalism in any way? I think we see globalisation at work to some degree. So you see ideas spreading because of, of globalisation. So CSR is something which begins in America, begins in Europe, spreads from there to emerging markets. That's not surprising. India and China have been undergoing essentially a, a model, a, a process of industrialisation, which is based upon an existing market-orientated capitalist neoliberal model, which is very much the model. Historically, it was capitalist. Recently, it's been neoliberal. That was a model of the West. Now, an interesting question would be, are India and China neoliberal? They're certainly capitalist, I think. I think that's right. Uh, they are no longer, certainly in China's case, a planned economy. And India had a planned economy until the early 90s, despite having not being an authoritarian communist state. It had a socialist planned economy system. Now, they're moving away from that, but many people in the West would say, okay, China and India are moving towards a Western liberal model. That may not be the case at all. They may be developing a distinctive form of capitalism, and that became clear this afternoon, I think, in the presentations. But positive moves in both countries, China and India, and some emulating of the systems of the West. What's, I think, positive about China's evolution less so India's evolution, is a rejection of the recent dogma in the global north and the west that labour regulation, workers' rights and social cohesion are in some way incompatible with a, a technologically driven, dynamic capitalist economy. China's rejected that. Now, that's for many reasons. Social cohesion is a big issue in China because of the extreme pace of their development. There is social disorder, there is protest, and the Chinese party state reacted to that by accepting the need for social cohesion. So labor law fulfills a dual purpose, fairness at work, to some degree employee voice, coupled with industrial upgrading. That's become the Chinese model. India's a very, very different story. India is, has not gone down that route so far, and India's labor legislation is not enforced. It's often archaic and not functioning properly, and there are big loopholes which are encouraged by government, not discouraged. States like Gujarat are encouraged to opt out of national laws, and they can do that to to have a much weaker form of labour regulation. And so this low-cost model, this model based upon outsourcing and fragmentation of the enterprise, is being encouraged in India, and India has not at all accepted something like the Chinese model. Now, that's a point of difference between the two, which I think may become clearer over time, and I think is, again, very important for understanding 
the different dynamics at work. The BRICs are not one system, they're not a monolithic group, and they're much less monolithic than the West is. But even in India, there seems to be a message, which is employees are consumers too. If you want them to buy your products, giving them rights, giving them a guaranteed income is good for profitability of the corporate sector and good for the economy. You do see that in India, but one has to remember that in India, the informal sector, the semi-regulated sector, where much work is precarious and casual, is still over 85, maybe almost as much as 90% of the workforce. But there's been a steady rise in wage labour and informal employment in China, as in other East Asian countries, particularly marked over the last 30 years, when informal employment was not declining in South Asia, it was rapidly declining in East Asia. So these are completely different models and what we talked about the consumption-led model there may be signs of that in India but I think it's much less institutionally embedded than is the case in China. My name is Bima Arora. the title of my paper is Corporate Social Responsibility Regulation and Governance Public and Private Chasm Some Evidence from India. My name is Corinna Braun-Munzinger. I'm a PhD candidate at the Global Development Institute at the University of Manchester. And my paper is on corporate social responsibility standards in China, policy goals on social upgrading and industrial policy in global production networks. What were you looking at and why? I was very focused on India as a country context. Looking at a literature on private regulation in the GPN and GVC, which is Global Production Network and Global Value Chain Literature, and Corporate Social Responsibility Literature to understand where does the private, how the private regulation has understood, and look at in the context of the recently mandated Corporate Social Responsibility in India by the legislation. And the idea was to see if the public regulation is helping widen or broaden or bridging this divide between private regulation and public regulation. And how did you go about your study? First we did a secondary data analysis, we looked at the laws, we looked at the documentary analysis, then we carried out interviews with the public officials, government officials, we carried out interviews with firms in India, we carried out interviews with the civil society organizations in India to put together the evidence around these two set of issues, whether it's private regulation and public regulation. And was there a link between the public and private? There is a link, yes, definitely, in terms of the way the, the two concepts, the private regulation and public regulations, are understood. CSR has been, been implemented in different ways. One is a clearly a community development aspect of it. Secondly, more towards environmental issues, which broadly is termed sustainability. And the third part is a compliance part, which is for those firms which are a part of global value chains. And currently what we see here in India is that all the three forms of CSR evident very much. And that's where the link comes from into the public and private regulation in a way. If the public sector sets the goals and, and says what companies have to do, they do comply to a certain extent. Yes, very much. So that's what the two years of implementation of corporate social responsibility law in India demonstrates that companies are increasingly so. And the government has given that space and scope for any law. You know, the typically three three years are seen as a test and rollout of the law. So it's just been two years so far, and the emerging evidence which is coming out is that large more and more companies are engaging. In, in CSR, they are putting their mechanisms in place, they are putting human resources in place, financial resources in place, they are putting policies in place, and gradually this is shaping up. Karina, we turn to your research now on China, but clearly India and China are part of the BRIC. So what was your research about, and, and why did you structure it in the way you did? Well, basically, the research I presented today is based on a background chapter to my overall PhD project. So my overall PhD project is looking at one specific case study of one specific CSR standard in China in the apparel sector. So for the, the paper I'm presenting today, I was really interested to see where do the, those corporate social responsibility standards come from in China overall, because there are more, than, more standards than just the one in the apparel sector. And so what I've been arguing today is that 
basically those CSR standards have to be seen in the context of wider changes in policy goals within China. So both changes in terms of industrial policy, moving from a mode of structural coupling into global production networks, which would be based on very much low value added, low labor costs, towards a more functional mode of coupling, which would be based more on, on innovation, on higher skills, on higher value added locally. And on the other hand, policy shifts within China related to sustainability, like increasingly strict labor laws, starting with the labor contract law adopted in China and then a lot of different other labor legislations coming after that, as well as increasingly strict environmental regulations. So it was the stick and carrot approach that firms did have to comply, but the compliance began regardless of the laws. On the one hand, I think you have to distinguish between the laws and the CSR standards I was talking about, because the yeah most of the CSR standards I was talking about are not actually laws. Like I think I referred to one, which is the revision of the company law in 2005, which includes a general reference to social responsibilities of companies. But apart from that, like the other guidelines are mainly voluntary guidelines for companies. So on the one hand, you have the laws, the like the labor contract law, other labor laws, as well as environmental laws, which are actually laws. And then on the other hand, you have CSR standards, many of which are promoted by, by business associations that are yeah, voluntary guidelines for companies. Also, like, they're promoted by, um, for instance, by the Shenzhen and Shanghai Stock Exchange. So in that sense, they are maybe not completely voluntary because for a company at a certain size being listed on the stock market, they would need to comply, but it's still not a law. So, yeah. When the laws are made, do we yeah. see more progress in terms of corporate social responsibility? Yes, I think definitely the, the laws are underlying, a lot. that's what I was, was arguing today, like the laws are underlying a lot of the, the CSR policies, the CSR standards. So also the, the CSR standards refer to the laws actually. For example, if you take the, the CSC 9000T standard in the apparel sector, it references on the one hand several international standards around corporate social responsibility, but also on the other hand a lot of, of Chinese labor laws. So in that sense the aim is to facilitate implementation of laws partly. If we go back to the study on India, to, to what extent do developing economies try to comply with regulations and laws, more developed economies? Is there some kind of global compliance taking place above or below the line? Well, there are two sides to this one is that as far as India is concerned, India is an internally oriented economy. What a lot of, you know, the entire GDP is focused within India. And export is rather limited as compared to China or other some other, other countries. And that makes a difference in terms of the laws which are... So wherever the businesses have an external relationship, there definitely is compliance to whether it's, uh, you know, the EU-related laws like REACH regulation, which is about chemicals in, in products and processes, or the firms which are engaging in or, or supplying or to the, the markets overseas, they are complying to the codes of conduct being asked by the companies or the multi-stakeholder initiatives, labor standards like SA 8000 or even Forest Stewardship Council, Rate and Forest Alliance. So most of these private standards companies are complying to or getting themselves certified to in that process. As far as when they look at fulfilling the needs of the local market, there is not necessarily because the consumers in India are not asking for, for these kind of certifications and, and labels. And for businesses, they are at this point of time don't see the need to get them certified or to get complying to these CSR laws or regulations in a way which are happening. As far as public regulation and the law is concerned, which is focused on a particular size of businesses, therefore the reach there is limited. So we have three set of businesses we are talking about. One which are covered by the public regulation, one which are covered by the private regulation, and the one which are covered by no one. They are obviously, the, if they are registered, they, are, they have to comply to the law. But I mean, as far as the data goes, almost 90% of India is an informal economy. So all we are talking about at this point of time is 10% of the economy only. It is registered and regular. There is a huge economy, huge people who are in you know, agriculture. For instance, 70% economy is dependent on people are dependent on agriculture, which is not much of part of this process. And, and therefore, they are not falling in these kinds of processes or, or regulations.
And Karina, we know that in China, you have much more state direction of the economy. If you have international factors at play, to what degree did they influence China's five-year plans? Yeah, so I think like in China, as opposed to India, I think exports have played a, like a, a big role in economic growth and this rapid economic growth we've seen over the past three decades. So there is like some reorienting towards the internal market at the moment, uh, but still exports have been like very important. And I think also that is reflected in those CSR standards in, uh, in different ways. So on the one hand, clearly like the initial pressure to adopt CSR standards has come from multinational companies that were putting those demands on their suppliers. So basically in the 1990s, you have had a lot of outsourcing towards Chinese companies, for instance, in the apparel sector. Then you had like anti-sweatshop campaigns in Europe and in the US putting pressure on those multinationals and they again were putting pressure on their suppliers in China. So I think that was like how initially the CSR debate in China started. However, at the moment you have like increasingly factors within China like the, the labor laws, environmental laws that I quoted before, as well as just like pressures around social and environmental issues, increasing inequality, increasing strikes, increasing environmental pollution. So like all kinds of uh, pressures that would require a response. And I think those are also like more internal drivers of CSR at the moment. Nevertheless, the international uh, factors remain quite relevant. And also there is like a second aspect in which the international factors are relevant, which is around the industrial policy. So I was arguing today that the Chinese uh, CSR standards are quite closely related to the Chinese industrial policy policy goals within global production networks. So if you're trying to move towards higher value added production, moving away from this low labor cost to competitive advantage, then obviously there may be some synergies with uh, certain aspects of CSR. So if, if your goal is to produce higher technology uh, goods, then having higher skilled workers would probably be a good idea. There are all kinds of issues that were related there. Also around environmental technologies. So like China has been, been putting a lot of emphasis on supporting renewable energy technologies and supporting innovation in like those sectors that are related to the environment. So on the one hand, that is for sustainability. On the other hand, that is to increase the innovation capacities of the economy. In conclusion, your study on India, did you look at Karina's study on China and, and hear what else is being said at the conference on labour law today for the Centre for Business Research? Be because the social case and the economic case go hand in hand. The important aspect here is that the labour related legislations or the new legislations beyond which are emerging and the, on the other hand businesses which are taking up responsibility themselves to drive certain agendas which are complementing the laws is where this research is going to add value to demonstrate and show that the two labor uh, private and public regulation for instance though the two have to work together and no one can achieve the goals completely on its own. And that's where the word now we live in, that you just cannot have governments or expectation from the government that government has to do everything. And the private sector also has to chip in in, in a way. Nor the private sector can do everything on their own. And that's where the kind of a multi-stactor or collaborative approach is gradually emerging. And, and this research is going to be, an, and this kind of conference at CBR is going to be very helpful. And they might also be popular with consumers who want to feel they're being environmentally friendly, that there is a corporate social responsibility and a code of conduct to workers before they buy the goods. Exactly, exactly. So consumers are increasingly aware of these issues. CSR is a common term which is emerging in a country like India and, and with the China, the kind of standards being this, this themselves are setting. With a growing awareness, everyone is engaging or will engage to take these processes forward. Thank you. We'll now turn for the final word to Karina. Social and economic progress going together, hand in hand. Do you agree with what's been said? Well, I think like the idea of like social and economic progress going together, it's it's quite interesting. I mean, it really relates to like a debate we have in this global production networks literature around social upgrading and economic upgrading going together or not. And I think what we see like around the world, not just China, is that actually sometimes they go together and sometimes they don't go together. So in, in other words, sometimes capturing a higher value added locally, moving to uh, yeah higher technology, 
psychology activities actually increases also the, the wages and working conditions and rights of workers. But sometimes it doesn't. I mean, it can even lead to social downgrading and to putting more pressure on workers in, in some countries so that we've seen like in the literature. I think in China there is like at least the policy goal to have both of them together, to take advantage on the one hand, yeah, increasing innovation, and to, on the other hand, combine that with rising wages and with, with improved working conditions. Yeah, really interesting to see how this will develop actually at the firm level and at the level of workers. So the, the issuing of standards in China was significant? Yes, I definitely think that that was significant, especially around 2005, you really see a turning point because before 2005, basically, Chinese actors seem to see um, those CSR standards very much as something externally imposed, like demands coming from international buyers to their suppliers, um, or maybe even trade barriers. So there was quite a hesitant uh, yeah, attitude towards CSR initially. But then from 2005, we can really see a turning point where there was a much more proactive attitude to, to CSR in China, like basically most observers of CSR in China would agree that around 2004-2005 was really like a quite a shift in the attitude in China and also from that point in time we can see like a lot of different CSR standards emerging both like general standards across sectors as well as sector specific standards and also some some local standards at, at city level so like really a lot of things happening within China since since that time Simon so you're an optimist I think that we're talking about developments which are, again, a little bit double-edged. So maybe India, maybe China, in their different ways, are not following a liberal economic model. But the, the downside of that is that in both countries, uh, as was said in this afternoon's session, what the state is doing is, is so proactive that it's squeezing out civil society in a way that we wouldn't accept in, in the global north. And so we have to, ha to have a clear-eyed view of in particular China's recent economic model, and also India's to some extent. And if we go back to the more positive elements then of your research and your lexometrics, coding and looking at labour regulation and employment and productivity, there's a theme that if you want your economy to be successful, then giving workers more rights goes hand in hand with that success. That's certainly one interpretation of the sort of work we've been doing. And uh, I would argue over a long period, over the long run, democracy, civil dialogue, employee voice have been complementary to and certainly compatible with industrial and economic development. So I wouldn't accept the view that democracy is incompatible with economic growth. Some people may wish to argue that, I, I wouldn't. And I would expect over time pressure for democratization in states which currently don't have it. That's a consequence, I think, of economic development, as it was in the, in the global north, as it was in the west. In the west, the worst thing the west could do would be to row back on social rights and row back also on democratic rights because of a feeling that somehow it must compete with the BRICS when they're not as fully democratic as we would see it as, as, as they are. That would be a catastrophe. Catastrophe for democracy, but also for our economies. They wouldn't, in my opinion, gain from a rowing back on social rights. And occasionally we hear that social rights have to be sacrificed and employee voice at work has to be downgraded in this country. A trade union act was passed earlier this year, which is the most authoritarian anti-labor measure we've seen in this country for many decades. That's symptomatic of a view in this country and other countries that worker rights are a luxury or a harmful fetter upon innovation, and nothing could be more destructive than that. Simon Deacon, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series on your Labour Standards Workshop the first day. Thank you, Bonnie.